You know, my daughter used to run track and she, she ran um, track in, in high school and she ran cross country. And they used to, she and her friends would always talk about their PR, their uh, personal record or their personal best. And, and the idea was it wasn't necessarily if you won the race, but did you do your absolute best? Did you beat your own record? And that idea carries over into what Paul's going to talk to us about today. We're in our finish series. And so we're talking about the finish of Paul's life. The finish of what he will write. This is the last thing that he will write. And Paul is saying, you know, I'm, I'm at the end now and I'm finishing. And he's writing his spiritual son, Timothy, and he's saying, I'm going to finish strong. And when I finish, I'm going to actually receive a reward because I've given it my personal best. Did you know that each of us have a unique race to run? And Paul will talk about his life as a race. And each of us have a unique race to run. We don't compare ourselves with other people. But the question that we ask is, did we do the very best we could with what God gave us to do? And if we did, Paul says, there will be a special crown for us in heaven. And so today we're going to see that Paul finished with a crown. And uh, to do that, we're going to take a look at 2 Timothy chapter... Uh, chapter 4, verses, man, I don't know why my thing didn't open up to it. It got turned on me. I bet you Mitch did this. That wasn't funny, Mitch. Okay, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 22, the end of the book, or the letter. He writes, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense... No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Achilla and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And so ends the uh, words of the Apostle Paul here on earth. Paul is talking about finishing with a crown. 
He fulfilled his, ministry, his duty, as we'll see in verses 6 through 8. And this is the main thrust of what he has to say and where we'll spend most of our time today. He fulfilled his duty. So we know that because he begins with the word for, which goes back to the last sentence. And in the last sentence, he says, I'm going to do all my duties for the Lord. He's challenging Timothy. He says, finish all of your duties. Do everything you were asked to do. And Paul is saying, now, I've done it. It's time to pour me out like a sacrifice. Pour me out as a sacrifice on the altar. My life is now being given sacrificially. He doesn't say, I am pouring my life out. He says, someone else is pouring it out. Who's pouring Paul's life out? He's essentially intimating that God is pouring my life out. My time has come. It's time for my life to end. And God is pouring it out as a sacrifice for him. I'm going to die for him. I'm going to be executed. I know it. And that time has come. He uses another word. He says, the time for my departure has come. That's a beautiful word for death. Departure means a loosening. A loosening of the lines when you're on a vessel or a ship and you let somebody loose and they, they, they go off in the water to a new place. It's time to depart this place and go to a new place. It conjures up the picture for those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans of uh, Bilbo Baggins in the boat as he goes off to sea. Um, it also can mean loosening the ropes on, a, on a, a tent so that the tent collapses. To in other words, it means to strike the tent. And usually on a battlefield, they would strike the tent and it was time to move on to a new location. This battle has ended and you're moving on. It's fascinating that the great general, Robert E. Lee, who himself was a follower of Christ, his last words on his deathbed were, strike the tent. And that's what this picture is. This time has ended. We've closed it down here. We're moving on to a new place. We're moving on to heaven. And Paul says, my time for departure has come. It's going to happen um, as a sacrifice. I'm going to be executed, and then I'm going to leave this planet. And I, I have this to say to you. I can say this much. I've, I've given it my personal best. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. When he says he fought the good fight, and each of these actually, the fight, the race, he's using... Um, he, he's really using metaphors that are athletic. And Paul talks a lot about athletics. In this particular one, the first one, he says, I fought the good fight. What would be a sport that deals with fighting? Boxing or wrestling? Those are very popular Olympic sports. If we read Paul's writings, we go back and look at all those athletic metaphors, and we look at Paul as being a very physical person, a very determined person, a person who was very disciplined, a person who was... Um, you know, really determined to, to get things done and to persevere, that kind of attitude with him. And then we look at his life growing up in a metropolitan area that had probably big games like this. It's very likely, and I personally believe that, that Paul was a scrappy little wrestler and, and probably long-distance runner. And he loved those sports. And so he uses them as illustrations in his writings in the Bible. And so he's talking here and he's saying that life is a lot like a wrestling match. That's pretty rough, but it's probably pretty true. There are times when you're up and there's times when you're down. It requires a tremendous amount of conditioning and hard work. There are times when it just seems like somebody just smacked you in the mouth. And there are other times when it seems like you're in control of things. And the, the good news, he says, is it's a good fight. When I was a kid, I used to wrestle, and the thing I liked about wrestling was that if I was in a wrestling match and I had a good referee and I was doing the best I was, and he was doing the best he was, the best man wins. What I didn't like is if I had a referee who would mess up everything, right? Well, the person who's refereeing our match on earth 
you can count on him to be just. God is in control. Furthermore, you will win. Isn't it nice to, to do? It's always fun to, to compete in anything when you know you're going to win. And we're going to win. And so it's a good fight. It's tough and it's difficult, but we're going to win. It's a good fight. And, and the real question that he has here is, are you fighting? Are you participating in the fight? You know, when I was a junior in high school, we wrestled against uh, John F. Kennedy High School. And we were expecting it to be a close dual meet. We didn't know who was going to win this match and was going to be close. And they had a guy, we were strong in our lightweights, they were strong in their heavyweights, and they had a guy who looked like a man mountain. He was 195 pounds, and he was just beefy, and he was a brute. And he, he was a junior like me, but he'd already gone to, I think he, he'd gone to state, but I know he'd gone to section finals and done well. And our guy that was supposed to wrestle him, our varsity guy, didn't want to, so he dropped weight. So he was 191, so he dropped weight to 175. In those days, people that know wrestling, we didn't have a 184-pound division. And so coach says, we need somebody to wrestle this guy. Somebody, so that we, because we cannot give up any points. And so I, you know, kind of famous last words, I'll do it. I never get to wrestle, I'll do it. So uh, they put me in there. I weighed 165 pounds. And I went in to wrestle this guy, and the coach took me aside before the match, and he put his hands on my shoulders, and he looked me in the eyes, and he says, Ron, whatever you do, don't get pinned. Because, you know, if we got pinned, we lost more points, right? So I went out there, and I followed instructions. I just flopped on my back like a fish, and I put my neck up, and I bridged for, for three rounds. This guy beat on me and knocked me, and he knocked me all over the place, and I didn't get pinned. I, went, I lost eight to nothing. It was totally embarrassing, mortifying. I watched off the, walked off the match, and the coach shook my hand. He said, good job, Ron. He didn't get pinned. Of course, it was the only time my grandparents ever saw me wrestle. <laughs> and worse yet, it's the only match that was ever videotaped. And the next day, we watched the videotape, and my, my, my teammates were certain that I had gotten pinned. And they were all going, no, I think he was pinned. I think he was pinned. But you know what was worst thing to me was, you know, people thought, well, you didn't get pinned. That's good. But what I realized afterwards is I also didn't wrestle. I didn't fight. I just survived. I went in with the attitude of, I can't beat this guy, so I'll just survive. And that's what I did. And I think that's how sometimes, perhaps many times, that those who call, call themselves followers of Christ live their lives. We're just surviving. We're just getting by. And the question that Paul has for us today is, are you fighting? How do you fight? It starts by you give your life to Christ. What he's describing here is the Christian life as a fight. So you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. Um, and if you do that, um, then you come into a relationship with Christ. Come and talk to us about that. That's how you enter in. Now that you're in, now that you've come to know Christ, how are you going to live for him? Well, just like in, in any sport, like wrestling, you, you've got to condition yourself. So that means you read your Bible and you pray daily. You're connected and you're seeing what God wants you to do. Uh, you are building relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, getting involved in small groups, coming regularly to church. You are telling people about Christ. You're not afraid. You're bold. You know that you're there to save people's souls. You know that you're there to serve people and care for them and whatever needs they might have. And so you live your life 
in a sense, almost in reckless abandon for Jesus because this life is really pretty short and we don't know when it's going to end. And so we want to do the best we can. Are we connected? Are we growing in our personal relationship with Christ? Are we doing the best we can in our life for Jesus? That's the first question Paul has for us. And then he, he compares it to running. And he says, that he says I have finished the, the race. And so the word race, of course, is running. Um, the word race actually relates to marathon. We're not in a sprint. We're in a marathon. I used to do a lot of running, but I usually would just run like, you know, three miles. I, I think I used to run three miles three, two to three times a, a week before my knees gave out. But, um, but there are people I know here in this room, that, Angie, I'm looking at Angie, that have run like marathons. Um, you know, I notice when people run, they never smile. Uh, I don't know why that is, but one of the reasons I stopped running too. Um, but there is something about it. It's, it's, it's gruesome. Once again, it's a gruesome sport in a lot of ways. It's very hard on the body. It's very exhausting. It can be very boring. And, you know, at times you just... You know, what am I doing? But as you hang in there and you persevere, people will talk about personal highs, this, this experience of euphoria, of feeling like they did the best they could, and they cross that finish line, and they say, I did the best I could. And, it, and then they want to do it again because there's this, this feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction that they really put it all out, and they went through this difficult time, and they came out on the other end. They went through the valley of the shadow of death, and they came out on the other end. And that's very much what our life is like. You know, we'll go through our hard times, but as we persevere and hang in there, you know, along the way we'll see some beautiful scenery and it'll be fun and enjoyable and then we'll get to the end and, and it'll be, be exciting. Another thing that's interesting is the word for race also relates to, in the context, it relates to course. In other words, each person has their own race course to run. If you do cross country, I remember when I'd go watch my daughter, she ran at different courses, and every course was different. Blooming Camp's uh, ranch now has a, a new cross country course for Oakdale High School. And so there's all these different ways that they run, and the point, I think, again, is what is, what is your race? God has a personal race course for each person in this room. You don't run against me, and I don't run against you. It's not fair. God has gifted people differently. He's put them in different places in life and society and cultures and families. But he has a race for you to run. And are you doing the best you can with that race? Uh, I told you recently, I, I read the biography of the great British athlete, Eric Little, whose life is memorialized in the famous Academy Award winning movie, uh, Chariots of Fire, which probably a lot of people have seen through the years. There's a scene in that movie where he's running the 400, uh, a race, and a guy hits him and knocks him out of the racetrack. You may remember this. It's a pretty poignant scene in the movie. And he gets back up, and he's behind the others, and he runs to the finish line and beats the others. Well, I didn't know if that was made up or not, but that's really true. And actually, the, tr the actual event is even more gripping than it's portrayed in the movie. He was not knocked out intentionally. It was just an accident. They were running, and he tripped, and he fell over some others. But he was behind, 20 yards behind the others. And he got up and he ran. Now, we don't have old grainy film of it. Uh, and we don't, you know, a lot of this comes from the people that were there. But the eyewitness said it was almost miraculous because he was so far behind that it was impossible for him to catch the others. And somehow he not only caught the others, he passed them, won the race. And what actually happened is after he won the race, he blacked out. At the finish line, he was completely unconscious because he had pushed himself to his limit and beyond. He couldn't have pushed himself any further. 
Um, he got everything he could out of his human body. And that's kind of the picture we have here is that we, are, we want to run the finish line so that when we cross the finish line and we go into heaven, that we go in full speed and drop into our Father's arms. We finish the race strong. And so the question is, how are you doing finishing the race? Are you, are you going full speed? And you have to look at your own individual life. How are you ministering to your family? and to your neighbors, and to the people you work with, or the people you go to school with? Who are the people that, you know, the, the 8 to 15 people that you most influence in your life that, that maybe don't know Jesus? And are you telling them about him? Are you ministering to them? What are the gifts and abilities you have? Some people are strong in administration, some in serving, some in speaking, some in encouragement. We all have a different blend of things that we do. How are you using those things to care for the people in your life? Are you being faithful to do what God is calling you to do? Or is there something you're holding back? And we want to cross that finish line strong. So we want to make sure we're doing that. And then the last thing he talks about is he says that we need to um, keep the faith. And now he talks about the faith as the life. And he's transferring now to, to our personal relationship with him, our dependence on him. And the idea is we want to keep the faith so we don't want to be disqualified from this event. To be disqualified is a painful thing. I told you a few weeks ago I was disqualified in my last wrestling tournament, and that was a very painful experience. I think of, it happens frequently, but I think of 1984, 1984 Olympics, Los Angeles Olympics. You may remember some of you that were, think back that far, to Vander Holyfield um, was fighting, and he got disqualified. And he had a bad referee who basically was for, for the other country, and they disqualified him. He ended up getting a bronze when he probably would have gotten the gold. That would be painful, wouldn't it? be difficult to lose that, to be disqualified. And so the question really here is, are you finishing, um, are you keeping your faith? How do we keep our faith? Well, you know, how would we disqualify ourselves? We may know Jesus, but... If, if we're sinning against Jesus, if we're openly denying him, if we're living in a way that is contrary to him, if we're doing horrible things against other brothers and sisters in Christ, that disqualifies us from this crown. We're not going to get this crown. And here's the thing that is subtle but is deceptive. You can be doing the best you can, you know, doing the very best you can with the gifts and abilities God has given you, but doing it for you and not for God doing it under your power, not his, in which case you're always coming up short and you're going to lose any, any reward that you would normally get. Here's the good news. Evander Holyfield came back to become a great heavyweight champion as a professional. And you can turn your life around too. We've got a second chance as well. And it starts today. Because what he's talking about is how you finish. That's what matters. And so you can confess those sins and repent of them and turn around and follow Jesus today. And that's what Paul would encourage us to do. Now, this is the bulk of what we're talking about today. This is mostly it, but I, I want to tie into some other things here. First thing is I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what this, this reward is. Um, he says, there's in store for him a crown, and it's a crown of righteousness. If we go to 1 Corinthians 9, it does appear that there's a crown of salvation for everybody that comes into a relationship with the Lord. But now he's talking about a special crown, 
a special reward that will be given to, to people. And the special reward he calls the crown of righteousness. The crown, there are two words for crown in Greek. One is the royal crown that a king or a prince or whatever wears. The other crown is, uh, is like a, a laurel wreath that you'd put on the champion's head that won an event. And the word he uses here is a laurel wreath. Uh, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, he says it will take those wreaths and will put them, those crowns, and put them at God's feet one day. But Paul also says that they're imperishable, so they'll never disappear. And I can't believe, but our father, who is more proud than any father, would, would not take care of those wreaths and put them someplace. They'll be around forever to remind us of our service to him and the joy it was to work hand in hand with him because he was the one who enabled us to do everything we did. And we just assisted him and we worked with him. And what a wonderful memory that will be for all of eternity. And so this is a wonderful opportunity to celebrate. It says that uh, the Lord, Jesus, is the one who will judge. It's not like the voice or dancing with the stars where you have a whole panel of people. There only needs to be one. Jesus will say, I was there, I saw. And yes, he did follow me and did trust in me and we did work together or he didn't. And if he did, you'll be rewarded and if not, you won't. And the reward will be given on that day which signals the very end of all time. And then he says, you know, this reward is not only for me, Timothy. This reward is for anybody who longs for his appearing. Anybody who loves God with a passion and who wants to make him happy and wants to do everything they can to serve him. And if they are committed, they too can have this reward. So Paul moves on from this point and uh, he talks about the fact that he fulfilled his duty with little support. Um, Paul didn't get a lot of support in the process. Timothy is a long ways away. Timothy was in Ephesus, which was in southwestern Turkey, long ways away from Paul, and uh, he was overseeing some churches there. So he didn't have Timothy with him. Demas, um, he talks about elsewhere in the Bible, Demas was one of, part of his team, but Demas, he checks out. And it seems to be that Demas never turned back to God. He, he turned away, and he just walked off on Paul. Sounds like he sent Crescens and Titus to other places to serve. Of course, we've recently talked about Titus. Only Luke, the good doctor, is with him. He was his faithful friend. And you know, in those days, they would dictate letters, and people were tra trained as scribes. Wouldn't that be cool for school? You know, I mean, when you guys like that in school, you know, you dictate it to somebody, and then they clean up the, the grammar, and they edit it, and they make it look nice. And Luke evidently was able to do that. And so Luke actually wrote Luke and uh, Acts. He was very well educated in uh, most people believe that Paul probably dictated this to Luke, and Luke wrote it down, which is one of the reasons why it has more medical terms in it. So um, Luke is there with him. And then he says, get Mark to come with you. Mark, remember, had been on his first missionary trip with him, and he had deserted Paul. And Paul and he had had bad blood. But Paul now is in good terms, in good relationship with him. So it's another good example that we can mess up early and then come back and get things right. He wants Mark with him. Tychicus is that behind-the-scenes servant, like so many in this room, or I know a number of you just like this. You know, he, he could trust Tychicus with anything. He sent Tychicus, you may remember, we talked about this earlier a couple months ago. He sent him to the, Col to the Colossians and to Philemon and to Ephesians to deliver letters. And now he seems to be saying, I'm sending Tychicus to you in Ephesus so that you can come and visit me. He'll relieve you of your duties. Tychicus just was a utility man. Wherever you needed him, he was there. And what a great name, Tychicus. Um, 
And then he, he says he left this cloak. Now, a cloak was like, kind of like a poncho. It had a circle in the head, in, in, you know, for the head, and then you just put it around you and warmed up. It's like a big blanket. He says, I need it because it's going to be cold here in the dungeon. So could you bring that to me? And then bring me the scrolls and the parchments. Parchments were made out of leather, and that was very expensive. And probably was Old Testament scripture or maybe early New Testament scripture. So Paul knows he's going to die, but he says, would you bring me some stuff? Because I still want to be reading my Bible and growing in my relationship with Jesus before I die. I want to be ready. And then, um, yeah, I remember... My boy was like that. When my boy was at the end of his life, he wanted to listen to Christian music all the time. He said, I just want to listen to Christian music. I just want to get ready, you know. And, and that's that, that, that picture. Um, Alexander, bad guy, probably was the guy who betrayed Paul and spoke against him and witnessed against him in court. And then Paul has this chance. See, remember, Paul, what he wanted to do, he's, he wanted to speak before the most powerful men in the world and tell them about Jesus. And so he appealed to go and speak to Caesar. And he was in, under house arrest for two years. But after two years, if Caesar didn't listen to you, they usually just let you go because they had too many people to listen to. So Paul may never have gotten to speak to Caesar. And now he finally has his opportunity. This is his golden opportunity. This is what he's waited for his whole ministry, to speak before Caesar and the council, the most powerful Gentiles or non-Jews in the world. And he gets up to speak to them, and nobody's there. Perhaps Luke was, but... Basically, it's implied that Luke was there, but nobody else. Everybody in town deserted him. He's all by himself to give this most important message. And he says, he's hurt. But like Jesus and Stephen before him, when they were being martyred, he says, I forgive them. But boy, I wish they were with me. Do you ever have friends betray you? You ever have a time where, you know, you sure could use their help and they're not there? Do you ever feel lonely and all alone in your walk with Christ? I know some of the closest friends I have in Christ are scattered all over the world now. Sometimes we'll talk. I talked to one on the phone last week and emailed one back and forth, but I don't see those guys anymore. And then I've had some people who have betrayed me, and you have too. And I find the older I, I get in my walk with Christ, the more I think of people that were contemporaries kind of fall by the wayside. They're not as committed. They don't want to hang in there. And yet I'm so encouraged by those that do and people even in this room that I see growing in the relationship with Christ. So we need to hang in there. It's not going to be easy. And be grateful for the Lukes in your life that are there. And let them know how much you appreciate them. And then he, he concludes this section by talking about how uh, he did do this, that he fulfilled his duty, but he did it with the Lord's strength. Um, and he says, the other people weren't with him, but God was with him. God got him through. God enabled him to say what he needed to do. And what's interesting here is he says, got him out of the lion's mouth, which is a Jewish way of saying, he got me out of a jam. What appears to happen is they were ready for Paul, they thought, and Paul silenced them. And they had to backtrack and, and go back and say, let's think about this again. How are we going to get this guy? So Paul stopped them in his tracks. I think this may have been Paul's finest hour. And I bet when we get to heaven, God will have videotapes of these things. And he'll take care of the, the translation, the language translation. And there's about, this is one of the top ten for me, is I want to see Paul 
give his final defense, standing in shackles before the most powerful men in the world with this scraggly white beard and bald head, looking them in the eye and telling them about Jesus Christ and stopping them right in their tracks. It must have been one of his finest times. And so Paul talks about that and he says, I stopped them this time, but I basically don't expect to in the future, but I know either way I will escape this because I'm going to go to heaven. And it wasn't long afterwards that they marched him out to a road, a Roman road, and they brought in the executioner and sliced off his head with a sword. And Paul went to heaven, even as he predicted. He ends with his, tradi- his regular greetings. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? They were always around, you know, the good friends. They were, they were Jewish Christians who Paul first met in Corinth, in modern-day Greece, and they had... Um, they were pretty wealthy. They had a leatherworking business, and Paul did leatherworking to make money on the side, and they later went with Paul and started a church with him in Ephesus, and then later he writes to them, and they're in Rome, and now he's in Rome, and they're back in Ephesus. Uh, wonderful people. Uh, one thing to be aware of, you know the movie Paul, there's a movie out, Paul, the apostle, I think it is. I'm very disappointed in it because there are a lot of inaccuracies. One of the major inaccuracies is it's all about Priscilla and Aquila being in Rome, and in Paul's last letter, they're in Ephesus. So it seems like that's a pretty easy one that they shouldn't have missed, but, but they did. Um, Anesiphorus visited Paul earlier on. Erastus, we have archaeological evidence that he may have been the treasurer of Corinth. Trophimus was a guy who got Paul in trouble in the first place. They blamed him for having gone to the temple with Paul and not being a Jew, um, which wasn't true. And he's sick. Paul couldn't heal him, and he's still sick. And then he says, there are people here that are believers that are encouraging me, and he names them. The most famous is Linus. Linus, we believe, became um, a bishop or was, was the head over churches in Rome and um, later was the inspiration uh, for the name of uh, another person who loved his blanket, and who became a cartoon character, and who has a defense to make every year, if you watch it over and over again, um, the Christmas movie with Charlie Brown. Um, And then it concludes, and this is classic Paul, it concludes by Paul just saying, grace to you. I don't know what your situation has been, but there's a, there's a gal here in church, a younger lady that was talking the other day, and she's saying she's a, a relatively new believer, and she was telling me how she had this, this girlfriend ask her a question, and she didn't know the answer, but she prayed in her heart, and God just gave her an answer that just surprised her, and she'd never had that happen before. And I think that happens. God will sometimes just give us words that surprise us. He'll give us the strength to do what we need to do when we need to do if we're walking with him. And that encouraged me. I know there's been times in my life where I I thought I was on my deathbed, and yet God gave me the strength to to give a sermon or to witness my faith. God will give us the ability to do what he's called us to do. And so Paul, he stays true to God to the very end and does what God wants him to do. I want to flash back one more time. My senior year. Guess who I had to wrestle the same dude. Now I'm 175 pounds, but he's still over 191. And this guy, he looks like he's getting bigger all the time. We go to weigh-ins. This guy is so buffed. He looks like he's in his 30s. And he starts laughing at me. And he's pointing to his friend. <laughs> Look at this guy. Um, and I'm thinking, this isn't good, you know. But it's starting to get me upset. And then when we go to the match, we have to shake hands. And he laughs at me when he shakes hands with me. So I'm fired up. I've decided I'm going to fight this match. I'm going to go after this guy. And, and so I run out there, going to get him. And the coach yells, don't lock up. Don't lock up. Well, I never had that much trouble. I'm not 
Superman, but I've never had anybody outmatch me in strength locking up. So I just kind of ignored my, math, my coach. He was the guy who told me just not to get pinned last time. So I just ignored him, and I locked up with this guy. Oh, my goodness, it was like vice grips. I couldn't move. You know, next thing you know, I'm on my face. And in those days, they could scissor your stomach. So he's scissoring my stomach, and the coach says, get up, Ron, get up. So I get up, and every time I get up, he'd take his arm and smash my face back down. I'm looking at the stands, all my family and friends, and I go, oh, bonk. And my nose used to be real long. Um, and, and this guy, and the worst part of it is I'd had, break, I'd had dinner, and I was afraid I was going to lose it. And so I was fighting more, not against him, but against myself. I'm like, oh, man, oh don't let me lose my food here. You know, and then the, the whistle blew, and I thought, this is awful. This isn't good. So they put me up at the top, and he turns around again. He starts beating me up. But somehow we got on our knees against each other. And I was just, I thought, I'm not going to give up with this guy. I'm going to give it everything I have. If I'm going down, I'm going down. So I grabbed his arm, and I swung my arm at him, and my bicep hit him right in the mouth and split his lip. And I, I felt his neck crack, and it, it snapped bap, and I, oh, I think I got this guy. Put him, put him down. That should have been it. Down on his back. Somehow he got out. But the round ended, and he was leading six to five. All I needed was two points to beat him. Reversal beats him. And so I'm running around like a maniac, and he's a big guy, and he's gassing, he's tired, he can't keep up, and I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. We got up to standing position against each other. I glanced over, six seconds left, and his eyes were glassy, and I tackled him, and he went down like a big timber. Bam, he hit the ground. I knew I'd won. The buzzer went off, but the referee, I still don't believe this is true, said that the buzzer beat me, so it was a six-to-six tie. But I got up, and I looked at him, and he had blood on his face, and he was crying. It was brutal, but I'll tell you what, in my heart, I felt like I'd won. I, I, because you know why? I realized that I had done my very best with what I had. And I had done it for the whole match, and I hadn't been disqualified. Life can be pretty brutal. And the real question is, are you doing the very best you can with the gifts and abilities God has given you, and are you doing it for your lifetime that you're not being disqualified but you're staying faithful to him and trusting in him for what you do and if you are then you can say along with the apostle Paul at the end of your life I have fought the good fight I have finished the course I've kept the faith join me in a word of prayer please Father thank you so much for Paul's example uh, for the inspiration behind it and the athletic um, metaphors that he gives us Lord, I pray that it would be a challenge to us not not only to come into a relationship with you, but to grow in that relationship with you and to see this life as the battle that it is. It's a battleground. But pray that we would stay faithful to you and allow you to work through us, that people would come to know Christ, that people would be encouraged in Christ, that people's needs would be met, and that we would be faithful to you for whatever you would have us do, uh, doing the very best we can so that at the end uh, we can celebrate in the manner that we talked about today. I pray for anybody that doesn't know you here today that they would come to know you and for all others to grow in you. Uh, And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.